Welcome to the New Books Network. Sri Lanka has recently endured tremendous political and economic turmoil with severe shortages of goods and fuel leading to the ouster of the sitting president. After Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the country in disgrace, he was replaced by another dynastic heir, Ranil Wickremesinghe. While much has changed in the once war-torn island nation, much has thus stayed the same. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Farzana Hanifa, who is professor and head of department in the Department of Sociology at the University of Colombo. She obtained her PhD in anthropology from Columbia University in New York. Hanifa has published on the social and political history of Muslims, the anti-Muslim movement, gender politics, and on education reform in Sri Lanka. In 2018 to 2019, she was a visiting fellow at the Center for South Asian Studies at the University of Cambridge. And in 2016, she was a visiting research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Moderne Orient, that is the Leibniz Center for the Modern Far East uh, in, um, in Berlin perhaps not altogether far, far east, but in any case, the east. She joins us today from Colombo. Colombo. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today, Farzana Hanifa. Thank you for having me, John. Great to Happy have to you. Here. Great to have you. So as I mentioned in my intro, uh, Sri Lanka has been through considerable political upheaval in the past few months, months political and, and economic. And I know I don't have to tell you that, but could you uh, outline for our listeners what's been going on? Yes, um, well, you know, there are many, many ways in which we can sort of map the trajectory of how we got here. But basically what has happened is that we've run out, as a country, we've run out of dollars. And that's important because um, as an economy that is dependent on imports, we need dollars for fuel, we need dollars for medicines, and we need dollars even for food. So we've run out of dollars for, again, for a multitude of reasons, but mainly... Um, we, would, we are dependent on an income from tourism and on an income from uh, migrant labor. So both of these took a huge hit during COVID, and I think that's globally known. So uh, as a result, um, our dollar earnings dropped seriously. And in the middle of all of this, we are also heavily in debt. And so we had to service our debts without these dollars that we were expecting. And so ultimately what has happened is that the government has not been able to manage the situation well enough. And so we have shortages of fuel, of medicines, and food also. And we have huge sort of like sort of knock-on effects of these shortages because, you know, the lack of fuel means that the whole sort of transportation system is at a standstill. So nothing is moving. Manufacturing is at a standstill. So the, so the economy is slowly and painfully grinding to a halt. Um, it's been projected that the economy will shrink by 8% this year. Uh, food inflation is at 80%. Uh, transportation costs uh, year-on-year inflation is more than 126%. Right. So those are the sort of the conditions under which, you know, we are existing right now. Now, the political crisis is that, you know, sort of, I mean, understandably, people resisted 
what is happening. I mean, the sort of the real sort of effect of all of this also included, you know, 13 hour power cuts, huge long fuel queues, right? Uh, people were staying in fuel queues for days and people were, I mean, there were deaths in cars in fuel queues in the heat, right? So people protested against sort of the deterioration of the situation. And also, I mean, the regime that brought us to this crisis also has been in power for a really long time uh, with sort of uh, breaks in between as well. But, and we've put up with a lot of excesses from this regime, right? And it was a sort of coming together of all of this. And there were huge countrywide protests to get rid of the president and the prime minister who were brothers and to get rid of them and to actually just not only to get rid of them, but to get rid of the entire political system, political elite that had brought us to this uh, crisis and to institute a new system. Now, unfortunately, the way in which it has kind of the politically it has resolved itself is, um, as you mentioned, I think, in your introduction, to bring someone who is sort of a diehard from within the system to uh, take on the acting presidency and now presidency proper until the sort of the end of this particular term, right? So that's so that's kind of where we are at right now. Fascinating. Um, I, you know, definitely wanted to follow up on the uh, kind of dynastic, what seems from the, you know, point of view of an untrained observer, a rather dynastic uh, kind of system that doesn't exactly seem to comport with, you know, the democracy that I take Sri Lanka to actually have. So maybe you could talk about, you know, how uh, families, you know, uh, influence or control or dominate the political system. And, um, you know, how is that happening? I mean, I know it's happening in the United States and other places, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons, uh, you know, have sort of followed each other or almost followed each other uh, into the presidential office. But uh, this is not really the way democracy is supposed to work. So what's going on? Yeah. So um, I was thinking about the narrative of the families. And it's true now for the, you know, with the Rajapaksas who've been ruling us, um, you know, sin and they were there during the war. And then there was a brief break from 2015 to 2019, and then they came back. So they, uh, I mean, are responsible for a huge sort of transformations in our political system, sort of a breakdown of structures, um, uh, sort of nepotism, a huge kind of a power vacuum in places where the family hasn't sort of taken over. Uh, well, the family took over so much of the running of the country that when the family was kicked out, there was a huge power vacuum, right? So sure, right? So the, the issue of families, dynastic politics in our country is huge. And the Rajapaksa commitment to a particular kind of dynastic politics is also partly responsible for why we are here now. But in this instance, it is not so much the dynastic politics issue that is of importance. It is actually sort of the coming together of the ruling elite. Both the Vikramasinghas and the Rajapaksas have now come together in some sense. Ranil Vikramasinghe, who's taken over now, has absolutely no legitimacy to do so for this reason, because, I mean, he was voted, he came to parliament after losing his seat. He was the former prime minister in the former government that was just defeated in 2019, but he was so unpopular that he lost his seat. His party was defeated so completely that they which they were, you know, historically one of the main parties in the country, were left with only one seat in parliament. And he came in through, and that seat was also uh, 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 something, you know, which is not elected. So 
he came in through this deceit as the lead, leader of the party. So he has absolutely no legitimacy to do anything that he has done so far. So the way in which he got elected into the presidential seat is by mobilizing the party that the, you know, the, the protest wanted to actually throw out with the, the Rajapaksa's party basically elected him within parliament to the seat of president, right? So it was a consolidation now of the, uh, um, the UNP Vikramsinghe and the Rajapaksas who've kind of taken over and are doing everything that they can to undermine all of the sort of um, uh, uh, issues that were, that were sort of raised by the protest movement in the few months that it had such popularity and such a presence in the, within the country. So this doesn't sound like the most auspicious set of uh, the, the most auspicious background for addressing a massive political and economic crisis. I mean, one of the things that was, I think, you know, emphasized in the reporting, at least that I saw about developments in Sri Lanka in the last few months was the, you know, uh, nonviolent character of the protests and of the sort of takeover, if that's the right word, of the uh, presidential palace. You know, there's pictures of people hanging around the pool and sort of realizing, you know, how, how these people lived. Uh, but it was all, you know, it was stressed that it was nonviolent, which is, of course, is a, something of a contrast from the long period of the war. So maybe you could say a little bit more about, you know, what are the prospects of uh, Mr. Wickremesinghe, uh, you know, effectively meeting the current situation? Yeah, so, um, and uh, you're totally right. I mean, the, the entire kind of ethos of the protests was one of nonviolence. And also it was a rejection of the sort of the, um, the power block that had brought us to this uh, situation, which included several years of war, as you know, Right. So it was a rejection of that entire power block. I mean, you know, the, the sort of the um, the uh, protest movements were also not just one. It was a protest movement uh, constituted of a variety of different groups and um, movements and sort of organizations and also just people coming up spontaneously. Right. So there is that. But now, um, I mean, the, the way in which the government with Ranil Vikram Singer at the helm has decided to deal with it is really interesting. They have now started arresting everyone who could be identified as being somewhat sort of um, uh, prominent within the protest uh, space and the protest movement. Now, the protest was organized in such a way that it was located in this one large public space in Colombo. Right. So people gathered there every evening and we sort of like chanted slogans till until eight o'clock at night. Some stayed there. There were tents. There was sort of an occupation of that protest site. So all of this went on. And what the regime has done now is to dismantle the protest site. Uh, to It's to arrest many of the people who led the protest to arrest people who were prominent in sort of like the social media kind of um, uh, uh, representations of the protest. There have been arrests of people who were in the president's house, you know, these, these um, sort of clips that were circulated globally. So there have been arrests of those people. So there is a sort of a, a using of the um, sort of uh, law and order mechanisms to undermine the entire protest uh, project. 
right? So that that they are doing. And also, there has never been a clearer indication that the entire ruling class, the entire ruling elite in parliament is completely out of touch with the their constituencies, right? They, you can't even call them their constituencies anymore because, you know, the protest movements were so clear in what they did not want. And what they did not want was for this parliament to continue. And so Ranil Vikramasinghe, after he came, he's been sort of like consolidating the ruling elite. But at the same time, it must be said that while, you know, there was a commitment to a nonviolent sort of protest movement, by and large, uh, there was a lot of violence uh, unleashed at particular moments of this sort of like long period of struggle, right? And these are, you know, very specific and also have to be understood in terms of how they were sort of like um, uh, set up in some sense. Because, you know, there was violence on the 9th of May where uh, the prime minister, one of the Rajapaksas, Mahinda Rajapaksa, um, called his supporters from a far away southern town to come to Colombo and after the meeting at Temple Trees, which was the residence of the prime minister, that group of people were unleashed on the protesters and they started beating up and the protesters and dismantling the protest sites, right? So that happened. And as in terms of a reaction to that, there was a huge outpouring of public sort of uh, protest against these, this violence that also led to a further um, uh, uh, unleashing of violence across the country. It is really unclear how this violence came about, how organized it was and who perpetrated it, but it caused a lot of damage. It was targeted at the uh, politicians and many minor politicians and major politicians, houses were vandalized and there was a lot of arson, houses were burnt, right? So that violence did happen, several people died. Okay, so now there is a sort of a law and order move to catch all of these people who committed violence against the sort of the uh, the, the the MPs, and um, but there is no there there is no sort of similar kind of um, uh, uh, interest in catching the people who actually perpetrated the violence against the protesters on May 9th, which set off this whole crisis, right? This whole sort of like May 9th violence. So, so after May 9th, the kind of the, the protest movement was also undermined in some sense, and there was a there was sort of a, a kind of a hiatus. And Ranil Vikramasinghe was um, made acting prime minister because the prime minister resigned. Okay, so yeah, and then I'll just say one more thing about the protest. On July 9th, there was a call by the protesters saying that you know we are unhappy with how the status quo has sort of formulated itself after May 9th after the May 9th violence, and we really need to push to get rid of the president and the, and the parliament, and to sort of like bring about an interim government, which can sort of take us out of this crisis, which is both political and economic. So it was very clear from you know, all of the conversations we were in during the time of the protest movement that we really wanted a change in the administration, in you know, who was in parliament and who was in the cabinet, right? So that is what was asked for, but when, Ranil Vikramasinghe took over as president through a sort of a parliamentary vote, right? He didn't listen to any of this. I mean, he paid lip service to some of the language of the protest movement, like an interim government, for instance, and like sort of a, an all party government and all, but not really in terms of substance. So in terms of substance, we have the same ruling elite 
consolidating itself and taking on sort of uh, this sort of um, uh, crisis and with no guarantees that it's going to be sorted out in any way that is friendly to the people. Now, as I said before, they are hunting down protesters and putting them in jail. Right. So despite a kind of commitment on the part of the protesters to nonviolence, it hasn't been entirely a nonviolent situation, not necessarily due to their fault, but because of what the regime is doing. So I wanted to go back to something that you said sort of at the very beginning of our conversation and has to do with the background to the contemporary situation. And that is uh, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I mean, I think if I understood correctly, you were sort of uh, hinting at the role and the importance to the Sri Lankan economy of remittances from migrant workers. Now, maybe you could say whether that's exactly what you had in mind and how does that all work? I mean, I'm not sure everybody who's listening, you know, may know uh, the extent to which the Sri Lankan economy is dependent on uh, migrant workers and their remittances. Yeah, so um, two of the main foreign exchange earners for us, the highest, I'm not quite clear about the numbers, but the highest are um, from tourism and from migrant worker remittances. The dollars that they bring in are hugely important. I mean, we have some exports as well. We have sort of garment exports and tea exports, but migrant worker remittances and tourism are huge. And both of those uh, broke down during COVID, as you know. So that that was a huge issue uh, in terms of managing our um, foreign exchange uh, balances, right? And also the paying off of loans. That was a huge issue as well. There were certain loan payments made while we were in dire crisis in relation to um, uh, uh, our, our dollar reserves, right? And that also exacerbated the lack of funds for essential uh, supplies. Now, you know, there are many debates about, you know, whether the government should have paid that loan um, uh, that came due, I think, in June this year. But through that payment, I think in January and in June, there were two payments made. I mean, the situation in the country got worse. So there's a huge sort of um, problems of management, right, of the uh, finances within the country that we are now um, having a really hard time with. Now, one thing that needs to be said is that, um, Currently, there is the country. The government has signed an agreement with the IMF. Now, the Ranil Vikramasinghe government is sort of consolidating itself and its sort of recognition within a certain sort of business sector and a middle class uh, is is quite good uh, because it has managed to bring about this sort of IMF agreement. The conditions of which the government is not telling us. And also uh, what they've done is they have also started managing the economy a little bit better in the sense that there is now a way in which um, you can access fuel, a quota of fuel every week, right? Now, again, this is not for, for those who um, uh, can't uh, utilize this QR code that they have and have access to the internet and all of these kinds of facilities. So it's a very sort of classist kind of uh, management of the economy. So um, in many ways, it is sort of a, a, a way of managing the country that maintains the class status quo, but uh, not the not uh, sort of uh, servicing the people who are in most need. 
Now, in relation to the uh, sort of the question that you asked with regards to uh, migrant worker remittances, so large numbers of Sri Lankan migrant workers are actually very low paid uh, um, uh, domestic workers and very low uh, skilled other kinds of workers who've migrated, right? So we are really dependent on the um, uh, uh, labor of all these uh, people who are not in the sort of the higher income sectors. But, you know, given the fact that the, uh, the elite closest to the government um, are the ones that the government seems to be sort of responding to, they have sort of been able to consolidate their position at the expense of sort of migrant worker families, the families of the poor, right? And so that's kind of where we're at right now. Got it. So another, uh, you know, sort of external factor, so to speak, here is, or maybe, um, you know, the Ukraine war. So, you know, people have been remarking for months, and we've done a podcast about the international ramifications uh, for the food supply uh, of that war because of the huge significance of Ukrainian grain, primarily, and cooking oils and things like that. Um you know, but it's generally been said that, you know, the wealthy countries of the world, like the United States, will weather this and probably not really particularly notice it. But for poorer countries in the world, it's likely to be a major, major problem. So would you say that has played into the whole political turmoil in Sri Lanka? Well, um, so in this way, I mean, when the oil prices were going up, that was a huge issue because we barely had money to pay for the little bit of oil we were getting. So when the prices went up, it was you know, the impact was huge. Now, Ukraine is really important in terms of people coming into Sri Lanka as um, tourists. There are a huge uh, percentage of all of the tourists who come into Sri Lanka, Ukrainians, right? And also Russia is important for tea exports. So in those terms, um, also the wheat, but for us, rice is probably more important than wheat. And um, we have dwindling rice supplies. But so, of course, the sort of the global context impacts, but in very particular ways in terms of Sri Lanka, I think. I see. So maybe another sort of background factor uh, is the war that took place uh, within Sri Lanka for many years between the Tamil Tigers and the Sinhalese Buddhist uh, uh, community or the, the dominant part of the political structure, you know, is that a, a factor? I mean, has that been kind of laid to rest at this point? I mean, how would you characterize the legacy of the war in contemporary Sri Lanka? Yes. So that's a really important question. So uh, there are three ways in which we can talk about that. So the first is that uh, the kind of the, the history of the conflict is very much with us in this way. Now, the, I talked about the attacks against the protesters. Now, the, the sort of the laws that are being used to attack protesters is the uh, a sort of a relic of the civil war moment called the Prevention of Terrorism Act, right? So they're using that to arrest protesters and throw them in jail. And, um, you know, they can be jailed for three months without uh, being produced in court. So all of these kinds of really excessive uh, measures that were legitimized during the war are being used now, right? So the irony is not lost on anyone. So uh, that is happening. And then also the way in which um, there's been a kind of a, 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 a sort of a, a cultivation of a fear psychosis, right? H uh, sort of a, a culture of harassment. This is 
also sort of a leftover of the war, which the sort of the uh, the the military and the police are kind of well versed in from the time of the war, right? So those sorts of sort of institutional mechanisms that were cultivated during the conflict for a particular purpose are now being reanimated to deal with the uh, protest movements, right? So that's a sort of a scary, scary, scary manifestation of the history of the war today. Now, in relation to ethnic relationships, to you know, communities and their perception of each other, now one of the um, sort of interesting developments of the protest movement was, at least in some circles, a rejection of the sort of the polarization that had been cultivated by successive political regimes, right? Because the government was always sort of um, cultivating uh, anti-somebody sentiments, either the anti-Tamil sentiments or the later on anti-Muslim sentiments, right? And it was very clear and very obvious to everyone, especially under the most recent regime, it was very obvious that this was a sort of a Sinhala supremacist regime that was sort of capitalizing on sort of, uh, you know, they see themselves as having, quote unquote, won the war, right? And they kept talking about it. So uh, as a result of them kept, kept them talking about it, we never moved on from the rhetoric of the war, right? So it kept coming up. But so the protest movement in some ways was a rejection of that rhetoric of who we are, right? So that was kind of interesting. So while it was a rejection of the rhetoric, that is not to say that all of the sort of the, uh, the animosities that had been cultivated for generations just disappeared. Of course, they didn't. But there was a po the possibility of some conversations, some sort of like reassessment of the past was there, right? So, so that is the sort of the, the second way of thinking about, you know, the, the impact of the war and what, what happened in this uh, particular context. So, um, I mean, in terms of the, uh, the third is that, you know, today uh, the, the regime is, is less committed to that sort of like understanding of us as a collective, because uh, the, the political elite cannot understand how to do politics in Sri Lanka other than through a cultivation of an other, right? So, you know, different kinds of fear psychosis are being, uh, are being uh, sort of uh, uh, let loose even now that, you know, there are certain sort of like left-leaning parties, populist kind of parties, which were getting uh, popular during the, uh, the, during the um, uh, uh, protest movements as uh, posing a threat, uh, uh, sort of a, um, a threat as bringing about a threat of violence and that we could again uh, be in a situation where, you know, we will have a war or we will have uh, violence that is similar to what we had during the war, right? So, so uh, eerily, uh, the war is very much with us, even at this moment, 10 years after. Right. Well, these things can linger on for a long time, as you know. So, um, you know, we're kind of coming towards the end of our time, but I sort of want to ask you, you know, what do you think is coming? How do you foresee this playing out? I mean, I don't know if one can speak of a resolution, but, you know, what's your sense of, you know, where this is all going? Well, um, so we have this, uh, I mean, in discussions, we talk about the fact that the protest movement is not done. We talk about the fact that um, you know, the, the illegitimacy of the regime is so clear to so many people that it is impossible that they sort of uh, go on like this. 
right? That and also the the kind of the crisis and it's the way in which it is affecting a majority of the population. I mean, people are going to react in some way, and another kind of an uprising is coming, is what we um, think, right? So now um, we can also talk about the fact that um, we are all very tired. Right? The the struggle took a lot of um, uh, energy from us and the way in which it has been sort of like now scuttled and managed and all activists being undermined is, is taking a cost, right? So uh, it will re-emerge, but it seems like uh, it may take some time before it re-emerges. So that's one. Now, the second thing is that the government, like I said, is managing the sort of the economic problems in a way that uh, it has acceptance within a sort of an elite um, uh, sector, right? But we will have elections at some point, okay? And the elections will be a deciding factor in bringing about some change. So now in terms of the economic crisis also, we are constantly reminded of the of wartime again in that sort of uh, during the war in the North, the deprivation that the Northern population suffered was nothing compared, I mean, this what we are suffering now in the South is nothing compared to what they had to undergo in the North during the conflict, right? So we survived that, they survived it. We will survive the South as well, is what a lot of people are saying, right? So, I mean, there is a lot of hope, there is a lot of resilience, there is a lot of, um, you know, people are trying to figure things out, right? And we are a very kind of literate, a very um, educated uh, population. And already there are signs of people figuring things out. The um, Our um, export numbers were quite high a month ago. So there are various, and the central bank has said that, you know, we are, we are getting enough money from sort of remittances and from other kinds of earnings that we are managing a minimum level of fuel and food at this moment. I mean, so, so you know, the, the uh, other agencies are saying, of course, that people are starving and uh, nutrition levels are dropping. So all of this is happening at the same time. So, I mean, we have, we, we don't have, a choice in terms of survival, right? So therefore there is hope. And sort of everyday life continues despite all of this doom and gloom, right? So I mean, we are teaching at the university, our students are coming on campus now, uh, post COVID. And um, yeah, so we are getting on with things. And so, you know, I mean, we've had, uh, I, th I think harder uh, struggles and I'm hopeful that we will come out of this as well. Well, that's uh, a worrisome balance, I suppose, but also an optimistic one. So we certainly wish you the best in finding a way out of this uh, dramatic and concerning situation. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Farzana Hanifa of the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka for sharing her insights about recent developments there. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm -hmm.